welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with Lead Pastor John Buckley. You'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18, we're going to be in today. 1 Samuel, chapter number 18. If you have a Bible in front of you there, you can grab. If you didn't bring one or you just want to look along, it's page 307 in the Bibles that are in front of, the, in front of you in the racks, and you're welcome to grab one of those if that makes it a little easier. 1 Samuel, chapter 18. Today, we're going to go through the first half, and then next Sunday, I'll finish off the second half of this passage. But let's just kind of get a little intro of what's taking place here. Today's message I've entitled A Tale of Two Relationships. Really, there's more relationships, but there's two primary relationships that we're going to be talking about today in this passage. But to get us, in case you weren't here last week or as a refresher, if you go back a few verses into chapter 17 and start in verse 55 with me, the Bible says this, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So what had happened, familiar story in scripture, the Philistine army had come, the Goliath the giant was the hero of the nation of Philistine at that time. And he challenged the nation of Israel. David, the little shepherd boy, decided to take on the challenge, not because he was trying to prove that he was amazing, but because he hated the fact that this giant was making fun of what he felt, what he knew was the God of Israel and his God. And he said, something's got to be done against this. So he takes a stand against him, and God directs a little stone as he stood there without any armor that the giant had on, and took that one stone, and God directed it and shot it, And it hit right between the eyes, the Bible says, of the Philistine. He fell over, and of course, everybody was shocked. You can imagine just with uh, hitting it, you could probably hear a pin drop after the thud, like, oh no, what's going to happen? And then slowly the giant falls and hits the ground, and then the Philistines are like, oh, that's our hero. And the Israelites are, wow, he really fell, and uh, everything kind of became pandemonium after that as the Israelite nation pursued the Philistines. And David's left there with the head of the giant that he chopped off. And the king calls him in, not even knowing who this guy was, who he gave his armor to, which I always find is a little interesting. He didn't really know who he was, though, as far as his family background was concerned. And what we find from this story here is a really pivotal time between Saul and David. Because Saul comes into this already being told by Samuel that he's no longer going to be the line that God carries out his plan for the nation of Israel's kingly line. He doesn't know yet that David is the anointed one that's coming in. And at this point, as Johnny pointed out last week, there's an intersection of forces. And really, it is a challenge for all of us, and I hope that we can kind of pull back today and really evaluate our lives and look and to see where our qualities are and our responses are as you see Saul and David's responses to this next chapter in their life. Now remember, at this point in time, David had been that kind of guy that came and comforted the evil spirit that would plague Saul. 
And so he was known by Saul, but like I said, he didn't really know his family. He didn't really know who this guy was. And he wanted him to be a part of his court because, man alive, something obviously was taking place here. Something powerful. And we see some really cool things happen as we get into chapter 18. Verse number one, we're going to see a true friendship is born. A true friendship is born. Verse one, the Bible says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul and took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I'm gonna have to just say on a personal note that this passage of scripture is one that I read when I was earlier in my life, younger, probably college age or thereabouts. And when I read it, it was one of those passages that as I heard it and saw it, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a friend like that? And what it really reflected to me as I look back is how few really good, true biblical friendships are birthed, even though that's what God desires for us to have. And as I went through my life, I had friends in my life that I would say that we got along, we had common interests, we had common hearts on different things, but not people that God really knit me to until I ended up moving to Pennsylvania. I was a pastor at Church Down Sellersville Faith, and I was on staff there, and God just kept prompting in me. I came to some really pivotal times in my life, and I come from a home where I have two stepdads and two stepmoms, so kind of a mixed up background. A lot of questions, a lot of questioning about God's love and his care for me. And then along the way, I just got this burden that I so desperately wanted just to have somebody I could really, truly, honestly, bone honest, as a friend of mine says, uh, deeply be able to share with that person. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. And Sandy and I at the time were going to our wits ends with our four children that were driving us nuts. And we were like, we've got to do something. And God brought us into, into uh, uh, contact with some parenting material. Through that parenting material, we were hoping somebody in the church that was older than us, because all of our kids were little preschoolers and, and, uh, and early grade school. Well, no, they were all preschoolers at the time. Yes, all four of them. Whoo! Um, and we survived. That's why I have the gray hair, but we survived. Uh, but going through that and at our wits end, and God brought us to this material, and we started going through it. Nobody would teach it, so we're like, well, this, our church needs this. So Sandy and I started teaching it, which is really funny looking back. I'm glad there was good material because, wow, we were in the thick of it at the time. And along the way, God brought Dave Horton into my life. Dave and Chris, I think, were in one of the first classes that we went to. So I, was, I had already asked a couple guys that were older than me if they would, like, mentor me, and I got turned down by both of them. And I was like, wow, man, this is not easy, this whole finding somebody thing. And then God brought me across Dave's path, and I remember I tried to get with all the, the dads in the class and go out to breakfast and just kind of say, hey, what can I be praying about as we're kind of taking this class? It was 18-week class, 16 or 18 weeks. On a Monday night, every Monday night, we, we went and we uh, got together. Everybody got child care, and it was a commitment that we did. And uh, Dave, I go to Dave, and I said, I just would love to get with the guy. Maybe something you can pray about. I'm just getting together and talking life and sharing, you know, um, our struggles and our victories. And, you know, if, if you ever thought about maybe doing that sometime, it'd be great. And Dave goes, oh, yeah, I want to do it. Let's, like, start now. I was like, whoa. So uh, what it revealed is, of course, in Dave's life, God was preparing him. And Dave, uh, Horton and I, probably for four years, Dave, I don't know how many years, we were at Ryan Diner down on 309 in Sellersville that we met. Um, can't say a whole lot for the food, but, you know, it was a great place to meet. 
Um, and uh, we had a great time, and we cried together and prayed together, and Dave's family and my family, we went through things, and to me, that was my first taste of a real friend, a biblical friend. Because it was times that Dave, who is the processor and thinker, probably listened to me a whole lot more, but when Dave would struggle with things, and as I would hear it, and to see God changing my heart to think, how can I selflessly serve this guy that I care deeply about? How can I be uncomfortable at times and change my life so that this guy knows that I really care about him deeply? And I started to see not only Dave, but then God brought other people along the way, and I praise the Lord that I have a number of men that I would call really good friends, true biblical friends, that's radically changed my life. And I want to tell you this. The first thing that I want to point out in this is you got to be willing to be the pursuer in those relationships. I got turned down, and I realized you can't just quit and put your tail behind your legs and go, well, nobody loves me, nobody cares. No, there's somebody out there like you, and you keep at it, and you pray about it, and God will bring a Dave Horton or whatever it might be in your life, and you're going to be able to see life is so much sweeter when you're going through a struggle, and my family wasn't somebody I could call. I knew I could pick up the phone night or day, and Dave Horton would answer. Now I know if I pick up the call, phone, I know Ray Golden will answer. I know James Tompkins will answer. I know there's other men that I know will drop things and go, John, whatever you need, that true biblical friend. David and Jonathan's relationship should not be that, oh man, nobody else has that. This is kind of pie in the sky, it can't happen. I'm telling you, that's not true. But there's some elements to this relationship that we need to make sure we understand going into it. And the very first one is, if you're going to be a friend, you've got to be a friend that's willing to give all in the situation. So we see the first thing, that the biblical friendships, they have knit hearts. Knit hearts. That word knit here is speaking of binding tightly together. I think of the three-legged race. Anybody here ever done a three-legged race? Well, not many of you. You guys are missing out on all kinds of fun. If you don't work together, you are in really big trouble. And there's times, I remember at one time they partnered me up with this little guy, because I know, I'm a bigger guy, and this little guy, and I remember we were having the hardest time. I finally just picked him up, and I remember walking. It was easy, you know, I was going that way, because I'm running, and he's just kind of over there with me. Not a problem on this situation. And so as I'm carrying him along in that situation, I thought, that's not the way most three-legged races go. It's you working together step by step to be able to win the race, the competition, that's in front of you. And it's that idea of knit together that what you do and where you go, that there's a camaraderie, there's a connectivity, there's a commitment to be on this journey to the end of the race. And when we want to go into friendships, we never want to think as we go into it, how much can I get out of it? But if I'm knit together, it's how can I work together with this person? Not when are they going to text me or when are they going to call me or when are they going to come into my world, but when am I going to go into their world as well? We work together together on that. That's what friendship's all about. Like that three-legged race, David says here, the Bible says, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Biblical friendships have knit hearts. Biblical, biblical friendships, as I mentioned, are lifelong. There's a covenant that's made here. As you read on, it says he loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. See, biblical friendships are lifelong. Now, what is a covenant? It's a promise or a pledge of what, excuse me, it's a promise or a pledge when two parties commit to each other. Often, as, as in the case of God's covenant, for instance, his promise to Abraham. That's a covenant God made Abraham, God made to Abraham. 
And, and you see, that one was a permanent one that he made there. David and Jonathan committed to each other to stick together and to support and protect each other no matter for how long or how hard or how easy there was a lifelong committed relationship. Now, wouldn't it be interesting? I have a covenant relationship with my wife till death do us part. We're in this through thick and thin. And it has been some really thick, and there's been some thin, and there's been some hilarious fun times, and there have been some hard times. And this is a relationship that I am committed to. This is a covenant that I have with my wife and I. And what about having a covenant mindset when it comes to friendships? See, we, we don't have a covenant mindset about most things, whether it comes to church or whether it comes to friendships or whether it comes to all kinds of stuff. We really have a hard time making that commitment where we're willing to say, hey, no matter what happens, if my friend acts like a jerk, he's still a friend, I'm gonna pursue him or her. I'm gonna stick with this person when they are draining me, when they need to be lifted up, when they need to get smacked up in the side of the head with a two by four. I'm gonna keep at it. I find in friendships that I have that there's sometimes that you have to just keep being the pursuer. And there's sometimes you get the privilege of being the benefiter of that. But you keep at it because there's that covenant there saying, hey, we're going to do this together. We're going to knit our hearts together. And then we're going to do this together. And I'm going to be here for you no matter what. And I'm going to do life with you no matter what. We see here that he did it because he loved. And biblical friendships love deep, deeply. By the way, we all love ourselves. That's why we do many of the things that we want. The programs we want to watch. Remember the old days when you just had to watch what was on TV? Now you can have Netflix, Hulu, and you can have your own channel with your own favorite stations. And they'll even keep track of it for you. And you can have, isn't it amazing how much our world can cater to our selfishness? The recreations we choose, the foods that we eat, we love ourselves and we like to satisfy our own desires. To choose to love another like we love ourselves is a huge choice. I'm gonna love him like I love me. Wow, that's huge. That doesn't mean I love them the way that I wanna be loved. They might not love the same things. But I'm willing to even do things that aren't comfortable for me because I mean, know it means much to them. Say I love them the way that I love myself. It means that we'll say no to our wants in order to show our deep love for the other. How are we doing at that? But well, that's a struggle a lot of times in a marriage relationship, much less in a friendship relationship. But David and Jonathan, you see a deep love, and it's shown over and over again. In fact, David, after Jonathan died, made a commitment to take care of any of the descendants of Saul, his arch rival. Why? I think in large part because of Jonathan and the commitment and the promise that he made to him, that even after Jonathan was dead and he could have given up on it, he still took care of Mephibosheth and made sure that he always ate at the king's table. He was always taken care of. He was always watched after because biblical friendships love deeply. Last, biblical friendships sacrifice the most valued. Now look at what Jonathan did here. It's very important that we understand this in verse number four again. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. His sword and his bow and his belt. Now, first of all, we need to understand this. You could, there wasn't a Walmart for armor, armament buying back in Bible days. Only rich people had armor. 
not the rank and file. In fact, if you look at pictures back in the Middle Eastern times of battles, the foot soldiers a lot of times were lucky if they had a sword, excuse me, a shield. A lot of times they had spears. Some of them had some sort of metal head on it. Sometimes they were just sharpened sticks. You had to buy your own stuff. Now, sometimes there were richer kings and stuff that would make sure that their troops were supplied for out of their treasury. And as the nations got bigger and they were able to provide more for them, they took care of that. But then you had your personal armor as well. And Jonathan had this personal armor. Now, it's not quite completely understood, but when you think about what he did, the first thing you want to really evaluate here is there's two reasons that as he gave that to them, you understand, well, three actually. The first is, what a huge sacrifice. He takes off his coat, he takes off his armor, he gives him his sword, you carry your favorite sword with you. <laughs> he gives him his bow, he gives him all the stuff that makes him a soldier, but also that makes him a prince. That makes him a prince. See, because you'll find oftentimes in the Bible that that, that kingly succession, you'll see one hand it down to the other, and it was almost as if, although we don't know that Jonathan knew this, that Jonathan was accepting the fact that he was abdicating his role knowing that David would be the king. Now, we know the story, but can you imagine being in Jonathan's spot? You were gonna be the next king of Israel. And to give that kind of a significance, now, it may have been to seal that covenant, but this was a lot more than normal in order to seal a covenant. So someone asked, well, well, what did the king see that? We don't know where he did it. We don't know if anybody else was watching. We don't know if it's a private ceremony. But you see the level of sacrifice that was given by Jonathan that David would understand how much he meant to him. Man, when I read that, it just strikes me. I think to myself, how sacrificial am I in the friendships that I have? I'll meet you if you come to my area. <laughs> I'll meet you if you do the activity I want you to do. I'll get together with you if we can go to the place that I want to eat. And you think in our lives about how many stipulations we put in them so that it can be comfortable and easy for me in the friendship instead of being willing to say, hey, I'll make the sacrifices for the other person in the friendship. Because friendships take work. And we're all called, by the way, to be friends. We're all called to have those deeper friendships. I know you can't deeply love everybody and have those friendships, but we should be doing everything we can to exhibit these things to as many as we can because there is a sweetness to those kinds of friendships. A true friendship is born. Verse number five, we go into the next phase here. A true warrior is born. A true warrior is born. The Bible says this. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that would have been Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman saying to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. See, we see first of all here in verse 7 that David was an obedient soldier. How do we see that? It says, and David went out. He went out. He was told what to do. He left being a shepherd. He left playing the harp, although at times he did that, the lyre for his king, Saul, and he went out, told what to do. Now you're a soldier. You're going to be leading guys. I want you to go out and I want you to fight. And so he did. He was an obedient soldier. Left his home, left his family, 
left his own personal preferences, he obeyed his king and he went out. We also see here, he was a successful soldier. David went out and he was successful wherever Saul sent him. Dave, David seems to have some natural ability in warfare. Along, Remember, he has the spirit of God on him. I'm sure that made a big difference. But you can see even in later passages with David that he seemed to have some ability when it came to strategy and, and warfare. Wherever he went, God gave him victories over the enemies, the Philistines at this point in time. But you'll see in other areas, the Ammonites and so on and so forth as he had warfare. We also see he was a well-liked soldier. Everyone seemed to like David. Um, it says in verse number uh, five, um, down at the bottom, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. You would have thought that there would have been detractors, especially in Saul's house. Wait a minute, this guy's getting more notoriety. He's getting more recognition. But everybody seemed to like David. He was well-liked. That probably meant he treated people in a right way as well. And the last thing we see with a true a warrior is that David was a praised soldier. As was the custom in that day, the singers came out, they would write songs about the battles and the wars that had taken place. And they sang praises to whoever was involved to chronicle the victories for future generations. And David, we see here, was praised in song. Didn't ask for it, but as a result of what he did. And I find in life that we are called as Christians to be warriors. Warriors for our king, our king of kings, to fight the fight that's out there. Are we obedient warriors? When God asks us to go and to fight the fights, are we willing to do that or do we have a reason not to do that? When we uh, fight the fights, are we willing to go, hey God, the victory's gotta be in your hands. David knew that all the victories that came always came from God. Are we willing to understand that when God calls us to do that, whether victories or defeats, he's gonna enable us to do it, but I'm called to be obedient in that. Well-liked, how do we treat other people? Both Christian and non-Christian. And I love the verse in Proverbs that says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. David was a praise soldier, but others praised him. You don't ever see David praising himself. Let your compliments come from others, not from yourself. Which, by the way, I think social media has led into a glorification of self at a whole new level that we need to be careful of. But then we see something happen as we see these tale of two lives. Here's David. He has this amazing friendship with Jonathan that lasts long, becomes successful as a soldier. What about Saul? Well, verse 8 is one of those tragic verses. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. What saying? That they would sing praises that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, let me ask a question, though. How would this story have been different if Saul would have seen Goliath come, and rather than cower with the rest of the Israelites, he would have trusted in God, and he would have gone out and fought Goliath? Things would have been different, wouldn't they have? But they didn't. And so Saul, rather than realizing that he had an ally here, that had comforted him in his pain, that had been faithful to him, that had obeyed everything he asked him to do, rather than seeing that, when he hears the songs, we see something tragic happen that happens to many people, and that's this, the true hatred is born. <clears throat> A true hatred is born. And Saul, rather than taking the biblical approach, the godly approach, you go, wow, God, thank you for sending David. And by the way, Saul knew that his kingdom was done. You would have thought he would have been looking for whoever God had next, that he could have, if he wanted to do this right, he could have helped groom the next guy 
which at this time, as far as we know, he didn't know there was David, but he could have been looking to groom the next generation rather than allowing this stuff to eat him up and destroy him. It just reveals the selfishness that he was just absorbed with in his life. Saul was very angry, an intense hatred towards David from a guy that moments before, seemingly, he said he loved him. Now, it's not like these are two little kids. I have four children, as I stated, and there's times that they are the best of friends, and there's been times that they're the worst of enemies. Caleb and Andrew were the best at that. They would be fighting with each other one moment, I can't be just touching my stuff, back and forth with each other. I'm sure none of you that have children have ever experienced that. It was just in the Buckley household. Fighting with each other, and then as soon as Andrew went to a neighbor's house, Caleb would go, where's Andrew? The one you just wanted to kill, that one, that Andrew. Best of friends, worst of enemies situation. Here Saul goes from the situation where he's acting like a four-year-old. You know, I love David. Come, come here, play the harp. You're the greatest thing. Oh, man. What, hey, what are you trying to do, David? Are you, trying, are you gunning for my job? You're going to be greater than me. By the way, David didn't do anything other than be obedient, and yet Saul wasn't angry at the singers. He wasn't even angry at God. He was all angry at David. Isn't it amazing how we take out sometimes our anger on the very wrong thing? You know why we don't like to do that? Because then it reveals the true intent of our heart, and we have to deal with the sin that birthed that hatred. Saul was jealous. And hatred is born of jealousy. When you're jealous, there's a hatred that'll come from that. And it will eat you alive. It's like a disease. And it's amazing how we get personal and petty. We don't attack the problem, we attack the person. We live in a culture that just eeks of that, reeks of that, that people in the political realm, it's, it's exemplified, where we no longer talk about issues, we attack people all the time. But that's filtered down into our society, that we can't have civil conversations and even debates. We attack, and you see this hatred, and how much of that, where's it coming from? Is it jealousy? Are there other things? Whatever happened to civility? Whatever happened to us as Christians, realizing our calling on this earth of what we're supposed to do but hatred is born of jealousy, and jealousy blinds the eyes to truth. When we get all jealous, we don't look for truth anymore. We're just looking for things to be able to support my jealous rage. I want to rectify. I want to feel righted. I want to feel justified. And so rather than doing the exploring and investigating we should, we attack. We belittle. We conspire against. And jealousy will blind the eyes to truth. We become so eaten by it. And we're going to see that cascade down as we read these verses. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands? And to me they've ascribed thousands? And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. What that means is that he kept, basically kept spies, is probably what happened, but constantly he always knew where David was at. There was an obsession with David. There was an obsessive spirit of, I'm going to control this situation by being able to watch him at all times. I'm going to keep an eye on him, and that's the way I can contain this. What about God in all this? 
See, but when we get wrapped up in our hatred and our jealousy, we don't thank God anymore. We are all consumed with our selfish desires and pride and prerogatives we feel. And that was, was taking place in the heart of Saul. Verse 10, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, or lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I'll pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. See, hatred acts out harmfully. The guy that came to comfort him that had been used before, the guy that was the one that helped him in his pain, when he'd listen to the music, a calmness would come on Saul. A restfulness. A break. But his anger, his jealousy, was so raging in his soul that he no longer saw David as a friend and as an ally, but as a competitor and as an enemy. And Saul, who was a trained warrior, took a spear, and it goes to God's protection of David and probably David's athletic ability as well, that he had to go from playing this instrument to missing a spear thrown at him, not once, but twice. And Saul goes from just keeping an eye on David to now seeking to harm David. And by the way, hatred always escalates. Jealousy fuels that hatred and it escalates. And he went from keeping an eye on him to wanting him dead and to pin him to the wall. Have you ever had that kind of hatred well in your soul? By the way, David battled it at times. Read, read some of the Psalms. We were talking about when a Bible study, uh, when with, I was talking with somebody this week. You, know, you read the Psalms, I mean, some Psalms are great. Praise the Lord, extol his name. He's our foundation. Other ones, David's going, yeah, God, like, destroy my enemies. Rip their eyeballs out. You're thinking, wow, this guy's angry at, at these people. So you, David, you could see the battles there that took place. And Saul was acting out in this situation in a torturous way. Hatred acts out harmfully. And then we see as we continue on, verse 12, and Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he had departed from Saul. See, hatred develops a paranoia. He was afraid, always wondering, always questioning, always speculating, keeping an eye on him, looking for opportunities to take him out of the game. And you see this tragic fall of this life of Saul who had an opportunity over and over and over again for redemption. And instead you see this constant pursuit of his personal pride and passions that ate him alive and led him to a point of not thinking clearly. And by the way, we're gonna see this paranoia played out as we go through the rest of 1 Samuel. And you see some of the crazy things that Saul will do because he's so bent on killing David, who by the way is not the problem here. Not the problem at all. But hatred develops paranoia. So a conclusion that we can all learn from as we look at verse number 14 and 15. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And to me, that is the two paths. David went out and did what he was called to do. Even though Saul had tried to kill him, 
even though Saul had it out for him, you know that he knew what was going on and he had every reason to start to plot against him. I mean, after all, David was the next king, so why not make it easier? Because David respected the mantle of kingship that was placed on Saul by God and said, God will take that off, not me. Do you see that godly response where Saul is absorbed with the pursuit and the destruction of David in his life? And you see this conclusion. And what happened with Saul is he started to live in isolation. That's a question. Are you living in isolation? He believed all these things were out against him, that David was out to get him, that this world that he was in, that everything was against him. And the more you isolate yourself from truth, the more you isolate yourself from godly input, the more you isolate yourself from being able to be open to what really is happening instead of our tunnel vision, the more isolated you become and the darker place that you can be. And I realize there's times in our life when we become in pain and we feel like we need to pull back, but remember the walls that you often built to protect yourself also will isolate yourself. And all of us may need times of isolation, but we were not designed by God to be isolated people. We were designed by God to be community people. We were designed by God to do life together. We were designed by God. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens. There's no dot, dot, dot to that. There's no, oh, but you. The Bible says, confess our faults who to one another and pray for one another. What, what happens? So that we can be healed. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor, but woe to him that stands alone. God did not plan for any of us to be in a situation where in isolation, it's always a dangerous place to be. And I don't care if generationally you've lived in isolation or just recently because of pain, but I'm telling you that's not God's plan for the people of God. So instead of, are you living in isolation, I want to ask you a question, are you living in relationship? There's a book that I love, it's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Relationships are hard. Why? Because I'm selfish. In every relationship, John Buckley gets in the way of stuff. Every relationship, my sinful nature jumps in there. And praise the Lord as we grace each other, as we confront each other, as we speak the truth and love to each other, as we stick by through thick and thin with each other. That's what friendships are all about. And you're gonna do stupid things along the way. I've used this illustration before, and I love it because Dwight Wilkers doesn't remember this, but there was a time that Dwight and I, which I don't remember the conflict, which shows you how petty things get over years, but I was so mad at Dwight, he worked at the same place I worked at the time. I yelled at him. I screamed at him probably. I, got, I jumped up out of the chair and I walked out of his office and I slammed the door and I walked on the hall. And I'm telling you what, I was five steps down the hall and the spirit of God goes, John, you know you're gonna have to go back and apologize. I'm like, no, I'm not. No, God, he is wrong. There's no way. He can come to me, God. I'm tired of going to other people. You send him to me. And man, God and I, I was in my office and I'm sure if I talked out loud, everyone would have thought I was a lunatic. As I wrestled in my soul, and I finally had to humble myself and go back and say, Dwight, I, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? I hate saying I was wrong. I do. But we're called to do that. Why? So we can have right relationships. Because when we're not willing to admit we're wrong, we live in isolation. And Saul never said I was wrong. But he did this, God. 
then let him take responsibility for that. But you take responsibility for what you can take responsibility of. I'm tired of believers not getting together because we keep waiting for the other person. You do the right thing. Well, what if they don't respond right? The Bible talks about it. Go to your brother. And if he rejects it, you are in right relationship with God. But if he restores, if he accepts it, there's a restoration. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So a couple questions to chew on as we wrap up. Are you a true friend? Well, Lord, I've been praying God would send somebody. No. Are you a true friend? Are you a pursuer? Are you looking to knit your heart? Are you willing to break down barriers that may have prevented you from doing that, maybe generationally, and be a true friend? Are you battling hatred? I beg of you, deal with it as sin before God because it will consume you. Deal with it before God because it will destroy you. And it will have a residual effect in other people in your life. I grew up and I had a father who was a hateful man and I was affected by that. And I had to confess my sin of hatred in my heart and stop blaming my dad, by the way, and take responsibility for what I did. But boy, I want to be sensitive to how I as a father and as a pastor and as a friend make sure that I don't live with hatred at the root of my life. Are you battling hatred? Take it before the Lord. Maybe even get counsel and guidance on how you can work through it. And then the last question. You see here the big one is Saul and David. And it was very evident that in David's life, God was his master. And in Saul's life, he didn't realize that Satan was his master, but definitely self was his master. And my question to you is, who is your master? If you're a child of God, you can still have self be your master. You can have other forces be your master. You are saved by grace. Praise the Lord and you never lose that. But that doesn't mean God's your master. Who's your master? Be careful. Don't let it be a person. If there's any one person that has such a strong voice in your life that it drowns out God's voice, that is not a healthy relationship. Unless their voice is constantly calling you to become more like Christ, beware of those situations. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for these stories that we continue on. And Lord, even as I reflect on Saul's life, how tragic, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for Jonathan, David, Lord. Thank you for the example they were for us, even in their flesh and sinfulness, Lord. They share with us much about what it means to be a true friend, God warrior, Lord, how to deal with our lives so we don't allow hatred to absorb us. Lord, we ask that you would just help us now to take what we've heard and that we'd live it, Lord, that it wouldn't just become academic knowledge, but heart change would come. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.